As a small town hospital, health literacy is a vital part of our community's well-being. Healthcare is meant to go beyond the walls of a healthcare facility so that patients are equipped to improve their health and maintain necessary recovery. So, how do rural independent hospitals like ours improve health literacy? With clear communication, united healthcare goals, and a thorough understanding of our patients' needs. I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm JJ Hodshire. And this is Rural Health Rising. Welcome to Rural Health Rising. I'm J.J. Hodshire, President and Chief Executive Officer of Hillsdale Hospital. And I'm Rachel Lott, Chief Communications Officer. Rachel, our guest today is a voice that we've heard from before um, here on Rural Health Rising. We've also had a chance to have Dr. Wells on our Facebook Live. You gave it away already. Oh, I did. Just and, kidding. Uh, it's not totally face- a big it reveal, but... Uh, Facebook Live events. And today we're going to talk with a fantastic leader of our Hillsdale Hospital Emergency Medicine team, and uh, he does a fantastic job for us here at Hillsdale Hospital and ensuring the care of our patients uh, is superior and that our quality outcomes are great. But today, the focus a little bit different than last time uh, as we talk about health literacy uh, in rural areas and how the lack of influence, how the lack of it would truly influence uh, the entire healthcare system and what the impact has been. That's right. We are talking with someone uh, who is a dedicated healthcare provider to our extended Hillsdale Hospital family and community, but is also personally very passionate about health literacy. Yes, our guest today is Dr. Lance Wells, Medical Director of Emergency Medicine right here at Hillsdale Hospital. And I want to welcome you back uh, to Rural Health Rising, Dr. Wells. Thank you. I'm, good. I'm, I'm glad to be back. It's gonna I'm going to be excited. I'm going to have to take you guys with me everywhere to announce me when I this come. This is how we're going to do it. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this boys is, and girls yeah. of all ages. Yeah, I'll still yes. sound my husband's trumpets. We'll do a little fanfare yeah, do, 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 at the beginning. Do, 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 do. Yeah, it'll sound like a dying animal. Have my own but, personal hey, theme music and announcer yes. that coming yeah. out. To we'll the, work on the music. Okay. Yeah, you know, they get walk-up songs in baseball. Why don't we get that everywhere else? You know, Exactly. Start every meeting with everybody's walk-up song. I'm going to do it. Dr. Wells, I'm going to work on it for you, okay? Okay, I got to be the first one. Okay, (laughs) consider it done. So to start, Dr. (laughs) Wells, as a reminder for our listeners, it's been a little bit since you have been on by the time this episode airs. Um, So tell our listeners just quickly a little bit about yourself, your background, and your work in emergency medicine here at Hillsdale. Uh, Yes, my name is uh, Dr. Lance Wells. I am a board-certified emergency medicine physician as well as a board-certified internal medicine physician. I'm currently the medical director here at Hillsdale Hospital. I've been um, blessed to do both emergency and internal medicine. And since I've been director, I've learned a lot about administration and trying to lead the team. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. My background is I went to Wayne State University School of Medicine. I was born and raised in the city of Detroit. Um, I went to um, Allegheny General Hospital for my residency, which was a combined residency in internal medicine as well as emergency medicine. And like do my through my tract, I've just kind of seen a lot of different health disparities mm-hmm. growing up in the inner city. And then also now that I work in the rural area, I mm-hmm. see a lot of health disparities out here as well. Mm-hmm. So one of my main interests has been health literacy and trying to empower people to to have yeah. their health care under their own control. Yeah, and that's going to be uh, an incredible topic for today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think timely. Uh, with what we're facing across this country. Absolutely. So before we dive into that, uh, and we do this on every podcast, and you had a chance to do it before, but, um, you know, I, it's a simple question. It's called the why. Uh, and I want to know what motivates you, Lance Wells, to get up in the morning, to do the work that you do, uh, to come into our emergency department and see a wide variety and range of 
uh, patients. Uh, and congratulations, the numbers are looking pretty good. I yeah, think you had like 70 some in yeah, one day. And I felt it's pretty good for a rural hospital. Uh, <laughs> so you felt it. And uh, obviously, it's a lot of work. And you could probably go somewhere else and have less work, maybe, you know, not as much influence, which I think is important uh, that you have a lot of influence here. But beyond all that, what is your why? What motivates you? What gets you up out of bed in the morning to do the work you do? Yeah, so so my why is pretty consistent. I think I gave you guys the quote last time, you know, people don't care what you know until they know that you care. Mm-hmm. So my why is pretty simple. It's compassion and being able to show my patients compassion and being somebody there when they feel like all the chips are down and when they don't have any last hope, you know, I pride myself on being competent and compassionate and at the bedside. And um, a big part of what I want to do is empower people to be able to take care of their own health. A, so they don't come to that place where they need an emergency services, but also just to kind of improve their overall wellness in their life. Mm-hmm. And that's my why every day. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really change. It's been like that since I can remember, since I was a kid, you yeah. know. I think so much plays into it. And that's where health literacy sticks out to me as a passion because mm-hmm. that's like an avenue to get people where mm-hmm. they need to be. And also clinicians to be able to connect with their patients. Mm-hmm. It is so very important. It really is. So on that note, let's talk about health literacy or the lack thereof. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we get into too much about that, can you give us an overview when we say health literacy for someone who's like, I understand yeah. kind of what that is, but I be couldn't just define it myself. Yeah. Can yeah. you kind of describe that for our listeners to understand when we talk about health literacy, mm-hmm. what are we talking about and what does that look like in our community so far that you've seen? Right. Okay. So a, a lot of people will define health literacy different ways. Um, I would, I, what I say, and, I, and I'll give a shout out to uh, uh, Ms. Helen Osborne, who was the founder of Health Literacy Month, who I've had the pleasure of speaking with a few times. So Health literacy is being able to understand and comprehend the various informations inside healthcare. Mm-hmm. That means, you know, what proper diet is, um, when to go to your doctor, and the information that you read and understand about your health. But it's also being able to implement that information in mm-hmm. your life mm-hmm. where it's where it's applicable. So mm-hmm. you can use the information, not just understand it, mm-hmm. but also. So in my mind, health literacy is a definition means that you have access to the information. Mm-hmm. You're able to understand the information. And most importantly, you're able to use the mm-hmm. information mm-hmm. Uh, to accomplish your health goals. So what do you see in terms of health literacy in a rural community like Hillsdale, where are some of the um, biggest gaps right now? Yeah. So some of the biggest gaps right now, I think, are access uh, primarily. And I think that's usually the biggest gap and barrier, whether you're talking a rural community or urban community. I I draw a lot, um, you know, having grown up in an urban environment and working in a rural environment, I see a lot of similarities. Mm -hmm. And access usually plays a huge role. Um, if you don't have access to the information, you can't process it. You can't sit with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you you can't understand it. So how could you possibly be able to use it if you don't have access mm-hmm. to it? Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I see in our department um, often is when and when not to come into the emergency department or mm-hmm. when and when not to go to your health care provider. Um, I'm blessed enough. I have a pretty decent bedside manner. So a lot of patients have offer for me to to be their primary care doctor yeah. and I'm so <laughs> and and what I usually get unanimously is that 
you sit down and explain it to us. You sit down and take the time right. to make sure we understand. Right. And I think that's the biggest piece, the biggest gap I'm seeing in the rural environment mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is that the patients don't feel like they're getting enough of a, enough information uh, in a timely manner for their needs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a follow-up to that. Okay. Um, so this, this really is, is leading into my next question, but uh, I have had providers in our system before uh, who my patients have praised. Okay. Like, you know what? Dr. So-and-so is fantastic. Within a 24 hour period, I could get a comment that says, Dr. So-and-so was awful. He didn't explain a thing. He didn't do anything. And, and that disparity, okay, is, and I, I'm not going to pick on your profession, but it's. I do it all the time. It's okay. okay. <laughs> but, but it's hugely responsible uh, on the shoulders of the physician. Absolutely. Because I can take, I know that the physician's probably going to be the same for both of those patients. At the level in which the patient who understood and the patient who didn't is the opportunity, wouldn't you say that is where the opportunity exists to get to the patient's level? And we've taught things, Dr. Wells, such as, um, you know, having stools in the room of ERs so physicians can pull a stool right up at, down. at yeah. eye level. That's right. Right. Used to be physician. Or even a little bit lower. Or lower. Yes. We, we That's actually, what I teach yeah. at, well, at it is. employee um, it's, orientation yes. is get a little bit get lower little so lower. the patient yeah. feels like they have yeah. control. I, you said that last time and I thought about that because I had a patient the other day. She yeah. was sitting up and yeah. I pulled up a stool and I was lower and she was looking down at me. I was like, yeah, so I'm not just a bad, right. Not a bad position. It yeah. used to be the other way around where I would lord or I am. And I'm not beating up your profession. What I'm saying is it, it is a, a shift that we have to really think about, uh, especially in rural communities where, again, I know this physician, wonderful person, but their connectivity to the patient is unfortunately interrupted by the patient's inability to understand a lot of the acronyms. How many right. acronyms do you use Ooh. in healthcare? You know, <laughs> so we're going to do an MRI on the, uh, you know, this, it's alphabet soup. Absolutely. And, uh, some, some patients who have literacy to healthcare because they're doing, you know, the Google searches, et cetera, have an understanding of it. Others are going to stare at you. So that's wow. even the prelude to my question. That's a lot so, to unpack right there. So <laughs> unpack, get, okay. So let's get the suitcase on the bed and let's unpack this sucker. All right. Let's unpack that. Okay. So. I think you were alluding to it, and I think you're right on the head. It is definitely a space for education, that gap between understanding and misunderstanding between provider and patient. Mm -hmm. That's the gap for education. And it absolutely is the provider's responsibility to bridge that gap. Not picking on my profession, a lot of doctors don't have the time to do that. Is it time? Do Do you feel it's time? Um, it is time, yeah. but there have to be other constraints. As okay. an emergency physician, um, I'm very aware of my strengths and weaknesses. Mm-hmm. One of my weaknesses is that I'm a little bit slower when it takes time. When, I, when I'm moving the numbers, I'll move the numbers. But I'm a little bit slower than some of my colleagues because I spend a little bit more time with mm-hmm. my patients trying to bridge those gaps. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a lot to do with patient perception of what's going on. Mm-hmm. They may still not understand, but if they perceive that I took the time and effort to try to spend with them to make yeah. them understand, then they'll have a better experience. A lot of ER doctors, and, and if you look at the numbers from yesterday, were super busy. Um, you don't have time to spend the appropriate amount of time with a patient 
to get their level of knowledge to where you want it to be, especially mm -hmm. if they don't have anything previous to draw on. Um, the other piece is the rapport, the patient experience. I had a conversation with my wife the other day um, and we were talking, my son said something very inappropriate, but he started the statement out as no offense. No offense. No offense. So we're looking at him like, well, just because you say <laughs> so no here offense. Here comes Luke, the offense. Yeah, Luke, yeah. just because you say no offense Before does not mean it's not no offensive. Before you say no offense, you're going to say something I think you're going to say the, something really I offensive. I think in the South, it's like bless their heart, right? They can say anything bad, but as long as they'll bless their heart. Right. Right? Yeah. So, that sounds so you can't, you can't it, do it. You can't do it. So when I explained it, I explained to him, and as I'm explaining it, my wife looks at me. I said, well, there's two parts to that. There is, you know, I could say something really offensive, and you could, as the receiver, might not find it offensive right. because you don't care about that. Yeah. Or I could take my time and craft a very good statement and try to cater it to you mm -hmm. so that I'm hitting you and make sure you understand. And you could be really offended by what I said. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. offense comes from the receiver and from the, the generator, the speaker. And that's kind of what healthcare is. It's coming from the provider as well as the patient. Mm -hmm. So the patient, depending on what state of mind they're in, what emotions they're going through, what information I have to give them, mm -hmm. it may not be a matter of how I give it to them. It just be, may, may be a matter of how the patient is receiving it. Mm -hmm. But the other part is, as my job, my job is to try to find out what emotional mm -hmm. state they're in, to try to give them the proper information and to bridge that gap. And that means I have to be compassionate. I have to be aware of what they're going through and I have to deliver the message in a way that they can, they can generally receive yeah. it. Mm -hmm. Interestingly that you bring up a topic that is um, heavy on the hearts of physicians who argue against EMRs. And that is because of the time it takes to go through the electronic medical record, it takes and distracts from patient care. And I think there can be a correlation that one could build to show that that is exactly what has happened in some I of would, our ERs. I, I would agree. It has not improved. Mm -hmm. I would agree. It is, it is a burden uh, when well, the government rolls out. Well, the way the insurance companies are denying as many claims as they can, it makes it worse because there's even more of a need to document extensively Absolutely. within the medical Correct. record Absolutely. to back up gonna get those denied. claims. You have or to document gonna get your denied. conversations, right. your yeah. procedures, the medications. Yeah. And, and, and I will say, to credit to my specialty, emergency medicine, yeah. this year they did a complete overall on how they docu how they accept documentation yeah. for billing. Yeah. Um, mm. Previously, it was a history exam, uh, review of systems, heavy. Mm -hmm. And this year, they kind of went to just uh, medical decision-making, yeah. which is the thought mm. process of right. why you're taking care of it. But you still have to manage just, EMR. You still right. have yes. to coordinate the transfers. Yep. You still mm -hmm. have to work with the patient's families. You still have to it, talk to the admitting services. You, you still right. have to talk still do. to the physicians. It's, it's a tremendous you gotta amount. be on the phone, talking yeah. to the family, talking to your staff, and talking to the patient. But, but the, what what the point I want to raise though is even though that is oftentimes used as the excuse you are an example of how it can do how it can truly be done because i hear a lot of excuses about jg you just don't understand the emr's got a burden for us it's got a you have dim now you don't get your records finished but but at the end of the day <laughs> dr wells you do engage my he's gonna get an email <laughs> tomorrow that's okay yeah, I know, you yeah. are you are but beyond that is the fact though that you've demonstrated that no it can be done Absolutely. if you're passionate about Absolutely. explaining to your patients 
what is going on in their lives. Remember, clinic phobia is a true, it's, it's a true it's a real thing. Uh, mm-hmm. thing. And it's people who come in or fear of dying or not leaving the hospital alive mm-hmm. uh, is they've a true thing. They've been watching too many movies well, and too many movies. Or, or, or traumatic experiences they've had in the past right. or their family yeah. members. Yes, yeah, come absolutely. in and didn't return. And so anyway, all of that to say a lot of this really rests on the shoulders of the provider and how they're interacting. So, so you unpacked a lot of it, but let's get to my question then about how this impacts patient experience, because it truly does impact patient experience to the extent that a lack of health literacy um, could mean something very different for a person who walks out of this hospital than the person who has an understanding of, of the healthcare and has an understanding of it. It could mean something totally different, which then could impact the patient experience of that particular patient. Like Dr. Wells was horrible. I don't hear that. I get you. that. And I, I, no, I don't. <laughs> and I will tell you, I don't hear that from you because I know exactly what your MO is. I do not get that from you or a guy by the name of Dr. Ali Shooker. You two spend an enormous amount of time mm-hmm. educating families and patients, which is to your credit. But you are the exception. Well, we have similar whys, me and Dr. Sugar. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I think what it boils down to, and, and then also we both deal with complaints. Before yes. I dealt with complaints, I kind of was but the as same. director, right. But, it's a, but, it's a, but yeah. when you start seeing, yeah. when you see complaints, I have no problem with the complaints because the complaints tell you where something's missing. It's a proof, if right? You see, yeah. If you see yeah. enough of the same kind of complaint, you say, yeah. okay, well, we're missing something yeah. here. Mm-hmm. What can I do to right. value add there? But health literacy is kind of like, it's like school literacy. Like everybody has different levels you understand. I, I'm going to talk to a nurse who's my patient a little bit different. She might get a few more acronyms. She might get right. a little bit more medical jargon because that's the way she can interact with the information a little better. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, somebody who's, you know, been a different industry their whole life. Let's take farming, for example. I'm going to try to draw correla- cor- parallels or correlation to what they do mm-hmm. every day so that it can make sense for where they are, what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the biggest thing for me is I, I don't use a lot of acronyms. I don't use a lot of, you know, you know, ABCD alphabet soup because I tend to talk in plain language, plain everyday yeah. English, lay English, yeah. however you want to say it, because I want the people I'm talking to to understand me. Mm-hmm. I know there are enough potential miscommunications and everything else from body language to eye rolling to mm-hmm. just cultural differences. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, there's a lot of different, you know, I'm a, I'm a black man. So my mannerisms may be a little bit different than what you're used yeah. to. So I have yeah. to I think about all those things when I'm communicating with people because I want the language to be clear. Even even as even as mm-hmm. um, simple as like how you emphasize the words. Like we, I may say the same word, but if I emphasize it a little bit differently, you may, have different... you may receive it differently. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Or it catches your attention and then right. it kind of right. you know, derails the the focus a Absol- little bit. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And 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 really, you know, what we know for our listener, if, if you're listening today and you're thinking why are you talking about patient experience? It's it's a driver in our industry. It's a driver for reimbursement, but it's a driver for a really it's it's a report card that you give to your physicians about you know how well they're doing. And right. let's talk a little bit about though. Okay, so patient experience. Address that. Can I, can I, can I interrupt there for a second? Because I'll even I'll do you one better. Please. Patient experience is also a driver of how well people stick to their mm-hmm. their training their right. their program. Sure, it impacts um, health outcomes. Yeah, abso- in patient absolutely. Outpatient. It does. Absolutely. There are a lot of studies out there that says um, how 
how you perceive your doctor, how you perceive your healthcare experience determines how much you stay on your medication or your health regimen. Like if, uh, if you look at medication compliance, if you look at going through procedures and physical therapy, patients are and people are more likely to stick to their regiment mm-hmm, mm-hmm. if they feel like their doctor cares about them True. or they're going to let their doctor let down, down. Yeah, or right. different different I don't them down and you know they and sometimes mm-hmm. you need when you're sick and you're down especially in the emergency department or even on the floors like in, in internal medicine mm-hmm. you you your patients are leaning on you because they don't have it right now they're sick they don't have yeah. what they need right now yeah. so they're leaning on you so when you're like hey let's go you know I'm your I'm your coach mm-hmm. and I'm your you know, motivation. I'm the cheerleader. I'm your background. I'm going to help you up. Mm-hmm. Then they get motivated. They get uh, energized. They're like, okay, I, I can, if you think I can do this and you're telling me all the medical stuff is in line for me to get well and get healthy, then there, something happens. Their belief switches mm-hmm. because it's very different trying to treat somebody who believes, I, I'll talk from ER's perspective, somebody who believes they're going to die versus somebody who's a fighter and says, oh, I'm going to fight. I'm going to be fight. everything. Yeah. I've had patients who came into the emergency department with a cough, mm-hmm. who in their mind, they believed they had, they had cancer. That's when yeah. they came. They were yeah. so worried. They're scared. They're finally like, okay, I know I got cancer. I've been smoking so many years. I got this cough. Yep. It's changed. Yep. Let me tell me to come in. And when I tell them, they're almost relieved. They say, okay, yeah, I knew I had cancer. Hmm. And the other people, hmm. you know, they come in. And by the way, this is the thing I hate the most about emergency medicine mm-hmm. is telling people this. Because that word has so much oh, it energy does. It does. that mm. you create a belief in their mind. It does. You know, well, matter what you, you think about yeah. grandma, mom, you think sister, about the brother, worst that can happen. The worst uh, third cousin. You think yeah. about the worst that can yeah. happen. And yeah. so when, the way you have those sensitive conversations, whether it be a bad diagnosis or a family member has passed, mm-hmm. you got to try to do everything you can to give them as much or as little information they need to process. Mm-hmm. And then once they have kind of processed that, that's when the community is supposed to come in like your primary care doctor or the nurse nurse program that reaches out to you or mm-hmm. the EMTs that do community paramedic or whatever the next layer of service is going to be that has to play up on the next mm-hmm. thing so that's where you know as an industry we could do better because we could have layered levels of mm-hmm. approach yeah. people go to their primary care doctor sometimes they always come to the ER maybe they'll see their surgeon a couple of times after their surgery yeah. but they don't have a consistent relationship relationship yeah. with a doc that they feel comfortable with the people who do usually have higher health literacy yeah. so you know um one of the other areas is uh, in in social economic situations okay where you're facing food insecurities. Absolutely. And you're facing a decision that one of your patients has to make between the insulin and paying the, the rent or the mm-hmm. lights. We face that here in Hillsdale. Yes, we okay? do. Mm-hmm. So that's also, an- also another uh, relation to urban markets yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so as you see that, you know, um, it's going to look a whole lot different in, let's say, Troy, Michigan than it does in Hillsdale in, in educating the patient population because the patient may present with, um, you know, l- blood sugar issues and with, you know, going into some kind of diabetic shock, whatever right. it is, because they, they can have, only afford a certain correct. type of food. So, right. so healthcare literacy, 
I mean, and I don't want to go down another lake here of this journey, but I, why not? I, There's so many of them, right? But I think it's important really yeah, to absolutely. distinguish that we have to be working in parallels with programs that provide food and absolutely. and medication yeah. uh, to this population because that's part of the literacy, is it or is it Absol- not? Absolutely, it's that yes. holistic approach, right? Of yeah, what is the big picture? And I mentioned this, I think, probably on Rural Health Rising before, but that's why you hear more now about. You know, people saying don't use the word non-compliant in yeah. someone's medical chart Absolutely. because that is not A describing the reality right. of what the patient is dealing with. It, it, it implies intent. And then that can affect how someone another provider treats them when they see that in the chart right. when they're you Absolutely. know looking at records or um, whatever. But it is it is part of that. Well, bigger picture. You have to take care of the whole person. You, you can't treat and, and the condition no, and patients feel and you that. have to figure out why. Yeah. Sometimes. That, that label of non-compliance, there are patients that are non-compliant, there are. but there are patients who cannot afford their medications. And right. there are there's patients a difference who, are, the who don't understand why they're taking this medication. There's a difference right. between There's the a total two. difference between those type of things. So finding and they need a different approach to be able yeah. to solve. So the social economic approach to health literacy. So social economics. Uh, so really what I hear when you say it that way, I think about it as like, we call them the social determinants of health, right? Mm-hmm. You know, food yeah, insecurity, right. yeah, finances, transportation, all those things. For me, Health literacy is kind of like the social determinant of health, because if you're very uh, health literate and you don't have as much money and health is your priority, you change the way you make decisions based on your knowledge. Like we are, you know, we're pretty fortunate in this room. We're all pretty intelligent and we've had access to information. So Mm -hmm. we've made decisions that are beneficial in our lives. So the more information you have access to, the better decision you can make. When I don't have, when I say I got, $10 $10 and I know I'm a diabetic. If I don't put money into my medicine, then something's going to happen to me and I'm not going to be able to go to work. Correct. One of the biggest things I hear is like people who don't want to be admitted, they want to leave against medical mm-hmm. advice mm-hmm. or they want to leave the hospital yeah. without getting their proper level of care is because they have a pet at home. They have a, yeah. they have, oh, I got to go to work. I got to get this money. And I always mm-hmm. ask them, I say, hey, well, how much money are you going to make? Who, who are you going to be able to take care of if you don't come in and don't get this medication and you get sick and you have to lose your leg or you end up dying, who's going to take care of your family then? Right. Yeah. And and as much as I love working, you know, right. if you're not there, then somebody's either going to come in and take your job, the, the, the company's mm-hmm. going to still roll, mm-hmm. or they're just going to do without you. Yeah. Like, but you don't see that in the moment. Right. You know, and right. that's hard. That's education. That's the literacy. That, that that's is the explaining. understanding what's going yes. on, the whole big picture right. that you talk about. The holistic, holistic your your whole yeah. health is more yeah. than just the money you make. Yes. It's your family that you keep and right. your social relations and the ability to work even more. You got it. Those mm-hmm. types of things. You got it. Mm-hmm. So it is a big picture to it. So I don't think we can get through a conversation about health literacy without also talking about medical misinformation. Oh yeah. Because I mm. imagine good point, good that question. that is something you deal oh, good with question, good question. on a regular basis, especially with social media. Oh, and anyone who knows me knows that I'm like That's a stickler. Bananas. I mean, when before we did our, our uh, hyperbaric medicine program, when JJ first talked about it, I was like, is this real, JJ? Is that snake oil? She's what like, I'm Googling it. I'm yeah, Googling I was it. like, where are the peer-reviewed stuff? You know, like, right, I'm like evidence-based, yeah. you know? But that's because there's so much out That's there not what that the, the, sounds the, really good. That's good. 
that is sciencey words that don't you actually make and, sense. And some and some of it is really really good. I've oh, like really I've good. had to like go into the textbooks and be like, wait a minute, that sounds really good. One yeah. only has to but look like, at the pandemic. Yeah, oh yeah, to find out example. what uh, misinformation mm-hmm. can yeah, do. I think I hit it. But when especially I heard like nutrition, certain, I really nutrition and this is, is a just big. My that's a big nutrition is a big space where yeah, there's a lot of medical misinformation. Opinion, again, yeah. strictly my opinion. I don't have any studies to back this up. This is not evidence based, but it seems to me like one of the biggest causes of obesity in America is misinformation about nutrition. Some of it that has been pushed from official sources for decades, but then a lot of it too that has just become conventional wisdom, fad diets, cut it. this out, you cut that it. out. Then it impacts your, you know, like there, there are so many things like that that can have a big impact on a population. Actually, that's but a socialization you, too. Yeah. Think about it, you know, right. uh, the glamour that we put out there, the priorities we set for Mark- our children, marketing. the marketing right. that's oh, yeah. done, yeah. you know, about those, this is how it should, marketers. this is how it should look, <laughs> this is how you should look, mm-hmm. those types of things. And then, so then they start Googling. It definitely is an aesthetic is. versus functional, no, it is. Uh, right. you know, perception of yeah. health and yeah. you know, looking, having six pack abs and yeah. certain measurements. Yeah. And you all those have things. barrels. We're good with yeah. barrels. And we a lot of things. opportunity for packs. people to make a lot of money. I was going to get there. By, no, it's yeah, promoting there. a bunch of false because, information. So, so I'll shut up now and let you talk No, no, about no, you're, no, you're right. I'm right with you. I'm, uh, you're preaching to the choir. And, and you probably, I'll take an offering. Then. It's, it's, all, uh, it's all anecdotal. But I'll tell you, the, the, the industries and the spaces in healthcare that have the most medical misinformation, I'll guarantee you, if you Google them, they probably have the most income sure, in those mm-hmm. sectors mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. you got the most to gain. And if you sound yep. like you know what you're talking about and people don't fact check you, or don't have experience to know what you're saying is snake oil, then you're gonna you're gonna get mm-hmm. enough mm-hmm. income coming into your way. Right. Um, I think you know you, you hit so many good points on that. So so what do you see with your patients are the, as the biggest pieces of medical misinformation, and how do you have that conversation? Because that's the part about it that's hard. Is how do you tell someone? I'm pretty. What blunt. you sincerely I'll, I'll believe just, <laughs> about your health is total hogwash. I'll be I'll be honest, I'm pretty blunt. The most medical misinformation I see these days is Dr. Google. Um so everybody Googles whatever they have and they end up in the yard. They like, "Well, Google said this." Now I'm very blunt. I said, "I really like Dr. Google. I do." I said, "You know why? Because they brought you to me." What did Dr. Google tell you? "Oh, it's cancer or it's a heart attack." And then what did it say? It said, go to the ER. Go to the ER. There we yeah. go. So That's why. And so now let me yeah. tell you what it's actually is going on. Uh, referral I'm, source. I, I, it's my Dr. greatest Google. referral. So I love Dr. <laughs> Google. So I get to I get to have an open palate mm-hmm. because somebody's come in looking at the very worst. And it's so many different levels before we get there. Um, so I like that part. Um, other places where I find medical misinformation is like TikTok and like kind of mm-hmm. YouTube. There's a lot of very credentialed people who are selling a certain service or a product and, right. and, and the best lies are always like 80% true. Exactly. So they have like a, just enough of a yeah. spin in, in there where it gets you nervous and afraid. Yeah. And then you can go purchase mm-hmm. the service or you mm-hmm. can go, um, go buy the product. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the biggest thing that, that bugs me a little bit because I am somebody who genuinely cares about people and linking it back to something you said earlier when we were talking about how you sit in relation to the patient. Um, there's a difference between physician-centered healthcare and patient-centered healthcare. Mm-hmm. I truly believe in patient-centered healthcare. You have to have it. You have to be responsible for your life. 
and your health and your wellness. I am like a coach. I'm like right. a specialist that comes in and gives you information to better lead here because you don't have it. But you are ultimately the one that has to make the decision and be responsible for it. And my job is to provide the clarity to that misinformation mm -hmm. that's out there and clarity on information that you don't know. Because we don't, none of us know what we don't know. Right, exactly. Right. I don't know how to conduct a CEO mm -hmm. level business meeting, but I'm learning. <laughs> you do a great job. But, but I can give my patient the information they need, how to yeah. take better care of their health, yeah. how to manage their medications, what their medications are for. Right. And right. then you do it in stages. Hey, okay, you the do. first time we meet, I'm going to just teach you what all your medications do for you. And this is what yeah. you watch out for, side effects. And the next time, okay, when you've eaten that, uh, you know, the bread, how do you feel? Yeah. You feel full? You feel bloated? You feel weird? Okay, well, maybe try this food. Oh, right. you felt better when you took it. Okay, okay, well, now we yeah. start layering. Educate. So when we look at things like diet, diet is so variable. The only way mm -hmm. to lose weight is to decrease the number of calories in and increase the number of calories out. There yeah. are a billion ways to do that. Whatever works for you, works for you. You can yeah. do intermittent fasting. Mm -hmm. You can cut the carbs. You can, you know, go all meat. You can there's go no, carnivore. You can there's go no paleo, magic, keto. There's no, yeah, yeah, there's no magic bullet. There's just no. do whatever you can sustain. Uh, there's a, I forgot where it come from, but it's like. It's like the diet that will work is the diet you can keep. The diet, the one work that you, the diet that you can keep. I, I think of it from in terms of like that critical velocity that you can maintain. Mm -hmm. So if you can maintain it and you can live that way, then that's what works. But if, you know, you go to crash diet. You start running 10 miles a day every yeah. day and you start drinking nothing but water and, and fruit, you mm -hmm. know, in and, and two weeks, you're going to be so sick. You, you know, right. you just, you're not going to be able to maintain that in long term. So, you know, one of the things we have done is called um, PCMH, Patient Centered Medical Home. Absolutely. And what that is, is that's looking at our, our clinics, primary care, and turning them into making sure that the focus is on the patient. So ensuring that they have patient navigators. Absolutely. Right? That's huge because of the literacy issue, making sure that they understand, you know, that they have as a patient the ability to get this type of service right. and to advocate for and patient them. advocacy. And we're, we're seeing more and more of that rise up today when we think about healthcare literacy and educating individuals. And unfortunately, though, Dr. Wells, here's the sad part. We don't get we don't get paid for that. I know we don't get reimbursed. We yeah. have to look right. at this from a community uh, perspective, community benefit. And we have to look at it from a perspective of, but we may stop the th the less than you know thirty day readmission right. to hospital. Mm -hmm. We may stop the the use of the ER as their primary care yeah. if we link them up for the long term, you know wellness and those type of things. But but PCMH is huge portion right now. The federal government looked at that. They do give you a little uplift mm -hmm. uh, in PCMH from right. the federal government right. if you have that designation. Well, but it's hard. I've, I've, I, I guess because of my internal medicine background, that's where that comes from. The, the whole comes very naturally it, to you. It, it, it does. Yeah. Um, but it has to start in the clinics, and I mean, you know, the resources, the finances, the money is important. Sure. Like we got to be able to fund some of these things to really get them to work right. But it's been my experience in life that most of the stuff that's really valuable, it doesn't cost. So mm -hmm. what costs is the time to implement it. So, like you said, health literacy is, and, and health advocacy and, and patient advocacy are huge. You're not getting reimbursement from it. But what you're doing is for the long term, if you can structure it right, you're decreasing losses. Right. And decreasing losses is harder to sell to institutions, to organizations mm -hmm. than profit is. Because mm -hmm. it's harder to capture it's the data. Because it, it's harder to capture the data. Yeah. It's harder to 
quantify how mm-hmm. much you're going to save. But if but if I can prevent like, you know, four or five 30 day readmissions, now I've effectively saved or created a, a cash flow. Yeah. But trying to find the people who can quantify that is that's the next step. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that would require, you know, resources. I mean, and then for me, once again, I do think about I do think about finances. I think about mm-hmm. reimbursement because we all have to be able to be sustainable. Um, but what's the benefit to a community to have a health literate, healthy working workforce and environment as opposed to people who are sick, don't understand their need for care and are a drain on the system because they're always pulling resources. And I'm not saying that in a negative no, way because not, we're no. here to help them. No, right. but And they would prefer to be able to be up and able body and doing what yeah. they prefer to do. Yeah. As opposed to the latter. So no, it's very I think, true. I think taking the time to educate people mm-hmm. and the time to spend money where it needs to be spent. I think, you know, I'm an optimist. I'm an optimistic realist. Yeah. But I think the the payback always comes back to you when you do the right thing. Okay, so mm-hmm. why don't we just do it? What are the barriers? What are the barriers preventing a community like Hillsdale from achieving true Healthcare literacy. I so, think in Hillsdale, the barrier is you, you, you need a champion. You need somebody who's going to say, okay, I'm willing to help spur this on. I think you would need marketing because I think you need to reach mm-hmm. the people. Mm-hmm. And then, like we talked about it, I didn't know if we talked about this earlier, but there are two sides to that that health literacy piece. We actually need the people to get the information and to be willing to process it and mm-hmm. sit with it. But we also need providers to be able to bridge the gap and understand that you have to be compassionate. I know you got 20 patients waiting, but these two patients don't need as much as your time because they understand what's going on. You can give them their meds. But this patient really, they've shown you in every Mm -hmm. aspect of their nonverbal communication that they need some more of your time. Doctors have to be trained to recognize that and to to key in on that and say, okay, let me sit with you an extra five Mm -hmm. minutes. Let me give your family members a a quick powwow. Let's bring everybody in, you know, circle the wagons, as my mother would say. So let's let's talk about you. Let me give you some time because you need you just squeaky wheel right now. Mm -hmm. I got to give you the grease and and make sure this is up to speed. You know, know, other patients and that that comes from experience, knowing where to allocate your time and and where not to. Mm -hmm. And then uh, a, a supportive administration. Yeah. helps. No, know, it does. Try it to does. Yeah. Push Do these you, things. I mean, in, in plain med language school, communication as well. That's in, huge. In med school and residency, how much direct education is there on how to have conversations with your patients? Or does a lot of that come from shadowing other providers and seeing how they do it. Is any of that taught or is it all observed and then people v- try to learn it that way? There is very little medical education on bedside manner mm. or how to have difficult conversations. It's part of the yep. the hidden curriculum. Yeah. So you learn so it you do. by by watching by and being involved. And if you have a really good person that showed you, then you have a really good skill set. In mentorship or in classroom? Mentorship. Mentorship. More like in So if you get a bad mentor. Yeah. Then you're then you could be in deep and trouble. And you know those yeah. exist. I, I know. And there are old there, school. There are more of them exist than not. Correct. I'll tell you, I, I'll give you a so perfect. So I, I want to I yeah. want to just vet this out a little bit. So we have a real significant problem because our medical field today is comprised of a lot of uh, senior uh, physicians, you know, and we can speak of that even in Hillsdale, looking mm-hmm. at the demographics. Mm-hmm. Uh, physicians are working longer. You're going to me in trouble not, with this line of well, question. Well, no, 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 I know that. But they, 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 you know, a lot of them did go ex, exodus out of the yeah. COVID. But there's still 
in this country a significant amount that would be representative of that old curriculum. And then and then also specialty wise, like different specialties, you can see there's a different type of yes. culturalness yes. to mm-hmm. those specialties. I'm not gonna pick on any no, particular you don't specialty because I want they, people to listen to me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and well, I'll do but, this, I can. but but I'll 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 do that and I'll give you a caveat. Yeah, sure. I'll tell you about one of my early experiences. I've always been a pretty caring individual, so I think some of that was in me before I got into medical yeah, school. Yeah. But on my surgical rotation, my third year of medical school, I had a patient that I was taking care of who had uh, uh, pancreatic cancer. And I was taking care of him and his family every day. I was the student on service, but I was being trained to you know, take care of him, and I was doing all the right stuff. One night when I was on call, this patient coded, and I'm in there doing CPR. I didn't realize it was my patient. Mm -hmm. until like halfway through CPR. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, we were not able to save the patient. And the senior resident, the chief surgical resident that was on that night, he took the time to pull me to the side and see how I did, see what was going on. He gave me critique on my Mm -hmm. technique in CPR and knowing everything. He gave me educational pointers on he said, at the time I was looking at being a surgeon or emergency medicine, he knew that. So he said, you need to learn ACS back and forth, mm-hmm. back of your hand. You should not have to think about meds, drugs, or any of that stuff. He said, um, I want you to come tell the family. He said, I'm just covering. I said, but I'm a student. He said, no, but you know the family. You have a rapport with the family. Mm-hmm. You can go in there. And, and so he made me talk to the family with support. He was right there. Yeah, I, I sure, said, all the right sure, stuff. If I got sure. in trouble, he was right there. I talked to the family, they cried, we prayed. And then I came back and he said, okay, now I want you to help the nurses. I want you to pull the lines. I want you to tag the body. I want you to help them put them in the, in the bag. I want you to take it down to the morgue. Did all this, got done. He said, okay, now you're gonna write the note. Now, every step of the way, the surgical resident was coaching me, counseling me sure. and teaching me how to deal with this. It it was complete mentorship. Probably the single best set of mentorship I got Mm -hmm. in my entire training. And that's not to exclude anybody because I got some good training. But that moment really stuck with me. And it was, I think it was the first patient I lost. It was my first patient that I actually had died. And Mm -hmm. it was like, Mm -hmm. it was a big thing. And I don't know if he knew it or not, not the flag in who's passed now, um, but it was really a good moment for me because the mentorship basically showed me what kind of a doctor I wanted to be. Yeah. And um, I think that hidden curriculum is there. It and it's it can be good and it can be bad, but you learn how to have those difficult conversations by watching others. I've personally, over my time, taken residents and students in mm-hmm. to those difficult conversations and I let them watch me perform them and talk yeah. to the family yeah. and show them how to mm-hmm. build rapport and all that's coming from I, I think there needs to be a curriculum mm-hmm. if I'm being honest mm-hmm. there yeah. needs to be a curriculum we've tried you know patient experience institute different sure. places have sure. these bedside matter things and they they break down to a couple of simpler things just you know form a rapport treat people the way you want to be treated mm-hmm. and treat them the way they want to be treated and and you know from there you yeah. you know you have to have the courage to tell the truth about what's going on with families or patients mm-hmm. and then just kind of deal and process the emotions and the outcomes mm-hmm. after that mm-hmm. and that's pretty much the way it is I you know I have my own style of doing it because it's my personality which makes it authentic Mm -hmm. you would have a different way Rachel you would have a different way JJ talking to your patient so you have to take what you are and who you who you are and deliver the information to connect to your audience Mm -hmm. and I think that's not so much taught um, Mm -hmm. 
as much as it should be, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So okay. when you have a patient who, whether it's about a specific medication, a type of lab test, um, an example I can think of that I have seen a lot of on social media lately is people saying they don't want to do the one-hour glucose test when they're pregnant because the glucola drink has so much sugar in it and they'd rather have fruit juice. And it's like, that doesn't actually That's work. This is a validated works, right? lab. It's a one-time thing, right. you know. It doesn't actually taste that bad. Um, but when you have a patient who they come in believing or understanding something that's not quite right, how do you approach correcting that in a way that doesn't turn them off to the other things that you also need to talk to them about? Do you have to ask questions more than you talk? Do you have to use more analogies? Like, how do you approach that? You you definitely have to find out where their knowledge base is sitting from and where, what perspective are they coming from? That Mm. you have to find that first. Mm -hmm. Is Um, it because that's just what they read? So they thought they they knew or is it because they have a worldview that is against sugar or something? So so you got to find out where they're coming from. You have to appraise how much is your, your words going to match up against what they already have, their preconceived notion? Mm -hmm. Like, are they going to take your word over what they saw on Google? Right. And then the last piece is going to be, you have to tell them either way. Yeah. Um, you and then if, if they and if they don't like it and they send your CEO a complaint, you have to deal with the complaint. You just but you yeah. still have to give them the information because what you cannot do, and this is kind of the the my like my only real concern for for providers is that it's 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 too easy to leave somebody ignorant. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, well, because and so you can it, simply walk away. You right. can say it's not it's worth the It's a lot of fight. work to educate people. It's not people. worth right. the time. Yeah. To argue, right. to fight, to try to educate. It's exhausting. And it's if exhausting. you're not comfortable with that because you're not a Dr. Wells yeah. who or naturally you has those as much skills. Experience or, yeah. or something yeah, like that. And, and, and it is experience-based. It is. Because the, the, right. the, the newer you are easier to give medicine, it's easier to walk away. It's easier to say, well, no, I don't have to do that. I can go do this or not. Like, well, good luck, patient. You know, I'm not going to educate Here's your prescription. Here's your script. Now, to play devil's advocate for that same question you asked me, um, those drinks, the the drinks are a measured amount of glucose and a certain type. Why can't we develop a study? Just say, hey, you want to drink fruit juice? Okay, let me calculate what juice you want to drink. Okay, let's look at how let's much sugar is right. in there. Right. Yeah. Okay, what would the data end up showing? Okay, go ahead, drink the juice. Can we go? Yeah, can, can, we, can we go can we, create and validate right. a lab test yeah. that now, does use a different something else? Yeah. Now that's. Upending it. That's it's changing. That's, yeah, that's like, that's, that's really good, saying, right. okay, we're going to really care to you as a to patient. patient. That's yeah. listening to the patient. Now, right. I don't know if we're there yet, you know, because some things mm-hmm. are, yeah. but, but it's we a could be. We could And then be. you don't have to have the conversation, which I mean, it could be, and just kind of taking this example further, it could be that that patient has an eating disorder. So you having a conversation with them about a one hour glucose test is going to be very hard to overcome when the root of that is something it's like something an eating disorder. It, yeah, yeah, that's not just, well, that's what I read online and I trust this person who wrote it kind of thing. Now you're you're really touching on some stuff now because a few years ago. Leave I'm, it to me to go too deep you, too no, fast. No, yeah. well, well, no, <laughs> well, JJ really was doing the same like, thing here. Yeah, yeah come on. I'm like, but, we got to take this all the way to the depth but of the analogy I, it's, or the and, it, and I, I probably should do a study on this, but this is, this is purely, you know, anecdotal for me. But what I find is that 80 to 90 percent of the patients I see in the emergency department, regardless of what they come in for, there is some deeper mental health, behavioral health issue at work mm-hmm. where there is a belief system or a singular belief or a trauma in the past mm-hmm. that's driving everything that got them to the ER that day. Yeah. If it's 
diabetes and they're in diabetic coma or whatever's going on, DKA, it's because they believed early that it was okay to eat. You know, in my community, it would be like a bunch of soul food. Soul food is not really healthy for your body. It's good for the soul because you feel comfort. It's comfort food. Mm-hmm. But those sugars from the macaroni and cheese and, you know, all the different things that you eat are driving some different mechanics mm-hmm. in your body. Mm-hmm. But if you're eating that every day because you're uncomfortable because you're not making enough money mm-hmm. or your relationships are not right or you mm-hmm. just are concerned about other stressors, it's then you're driving your body yeah. to be unhealthy. And yeah. at some point when something snaps, you're going to show up in the ER. And yeah. now when mm-hmm. we trace back all the the the... the causes from where you are now to the past, it's going to come back to some yeah. moment in your life where your information was not correct. So, so and you believed it. That's an amazing point. Um, my vice is I don't watch TV, but I don't, I don't. Movies. Okay. I don't, not, not even that, but I do watch thousand pound life and, and those, and, and here's why I like the psychology of it. I, I like to, and, and when you, when you strip away, there's a reason that someone is a thousand pounds eating. And, and everyone that I've watched, Dr. Now uh, is his name. Dr. Now is a renowned surgeon who puts him on a, a journey. And um, it's, it's, it's really remarkable to see that it all boils down to trauma in their childhood trauma mm-hmm. in in relationships mm-hmm. childhood is a big time huge where it, where it gets absorbed yes. that's that hidden curriculum that we huge. watch our parents but or that's our literacy right i mean right. when you think about you need to get counseling not right. food counseling right you need right. counseling from a psychiatrist but if, and there's and but the stigma associated with that is it's easier to th- eat there you go because there i i will go. eat because now and, i gotta deal with and that now that and fear now and i've got to yeah. go to the psychiatrist yeah. okay yeah. there's been and times then the stigma of that there's been times right. in my life where I had to talk to someone about mm-hmm. challenges in my life and say, you know, I don't know how to process this. I could have easily went to my mom's pecan pie to find I've, I've resolution. Had same, I've had the same thing. But that's the, part of literacy. Yeah. That's part of understanding. Right. It's not Absolutely. just physical wellness, mental wellness, spiritual wellness. That all is part of the literacy to your well, overall wellness. You cannot separate, and I, I keep, I hear it different ways, but you cannot separate physical health from mental health. No, you they, can't. They, they cannot mm-hmm. be cannot. separated you because cannot. they're so intertwined. If your it mind is. is not right, it's going to show up somewhere yes, in your it body. Is. It's going to. By whatever standards you want to talk about, right. mind health, Until you get the mind body connection, whether yes. it's just, you know, because you have a bad habit. Yes. And you talked about the thousand pound life, any extreme that you want to look at, like you look at alcoholics, if you look at a uh, thousand pound, people who are a yeah. thousand pounds or people who are extreme at the extreme, whatever it is, they usually have to start with mental health sure. because the mm-hmm. physical is not going to catch up. It always lags. There's a lag time there between what you believe and what you think and your physical actions. Mm-hmm. You're not yep. going to, you're not going to start acting on what you know until you had enough repetitions in your mind and in your life it. to really, to really validate what you believe. Absolutely. And then once you do, that's where you see the change. Yeah. And that's health literacy because now you've validated it. So beautifully done. As we conclude today, I want to ask you one last question. Sure. If I have no knowledge of healthcare literacy or what it means or what I should be doing in my part, how can I, as a consumer of healthcare, become more literate for, for my own health and wellness? How, how does that happen? How would you encourage that? 
Well, I would encourage the first step for me would always be talk to your primary care doctor. That's always the first step for me because that's supposed to be the first person to kind of be able to help yeah. guide you on your journey. Next, it would be as I, as I put the pressure on actual people is that figure out what's not right. Where are you not happy? Wellness is like a eight eight sided thing. You know, you got your physical health, your mental health, your emotional health, your financial health, your intelligent, you know, your intellectual health, which is related to your professional health. Those things are kind of all intertwined. Wherever you feel discomfort or pain in your life, it's probably the first area of health that you need to start getting yep. educated on and trying to how to fix it. Other people have experienced what you've gone through. There's nothing new under the sun. Now, the the way they model it, the experiences they've gone through may be able to help you or it may lead you to something totally different that helps you to get to where you need to be. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. Well, that's a great ending for something that we could spend a lot of time we discussing could. today. And it's been an absolute pleasure to Thank listen you. to the passion in your voice. I am very uh, passionate is, about this. No, it's encouraging. It's <laughs> yeah, encouraging. Yeah. And and the work that you're doing in those disparities is incredible to raise the awareness of what's happening, you know, and, and the work you've done and some lectures you've given at seminars. And I've highlighted a couple of those in my organizational update of the work that you're that. doing. Thank and you. I appreciate you. Uh, and we really do. So I want to thank you again for joining us today on Rural Health Rising for a much different discussion than we had the first time. Uh, first time we talked about the challenges of just running an ER. Um, but this is really getting to the heart of the matter. And I think it's very important. So Dr. Wells, thanks for joining us today on Rural Health Rising. And thank you for having me. And before we close, we like to do a fun segment with each of our guests. And our, so tell me again where you grew up. I grew up in Detroit. All right. Metro? West, no, another metro, west side Detroit. Okay. You ever experience rule at all? <laughs> Much yeah. of rule? All right. Uh, I went camping a few times. Did you? All right. Well, maybe you're going to tell your experience. So I want to know what is your most unique rule experience? And it could have been when you were here at Hillsdale. Maybe, you know, the Amish buggy that just came well, I, in. I am, you, I am going to okay. use my experience here. All right. So go ahead and tell us what is your most unique rural experience. So last time I talked to you about going to cut ice with the Amish people. I didn't go, yeah. but I, yeah. that was, that was. But you learned so, about yeah, it. I learned all about yep. it. So the, so the one this time is just, okay. So everybody I've taken care of mostly and, and even more so the people I work with. So I always remember hearing that, like, if you are the doc in a small town, they could, they'll pay you in like chickens or, or oh, eggs or oh, something absolutely. like that. So I have several nurses, several people that work in the hospital who have large farms and raise like cattle and, and chickens and they bring in eggs and they, and it's addition to the fact being nurses and the other stuff they do. And I think that's, that's probably one of the things that kind of catches me off guard. Cause like I said, I'm born and raised in Detroit and they're up at like 4 a.m you know, feeding the pigs, you know, checking the cows and oh, doing yeah. all that stuff, harvesting Absolutely. the eggs. And I'm Absolutely. Like, and then you come in here and they're like, well, you know, uh, one of our previous security guards who's not here anymore, yeah. he brought me steak from a cow from he a cow. had butchered. Right. It was his cow. Right. And I was like. Probably had it named. I, I don't know what to get a name, but but it was it was good too. Life. It, it, it was good steak, and I was yeah. like, "Wow, this is like this is like." I remember really asking, crazy. "Where's Gertrude going up?" And my dad said, "On your plate." 
Oh, for the chicken. No, I mean that's you know we named the but chicken. That's, but that's just that is the normal. Life you that's live. a normal and life. And you accepted here. it. Yeah. It's just and so what that it is. I think I think I think one of the nurses was talking to me about how they you know slaughter the chickens and take care of it. Yeah. And I just I was sat there in amazement like. This that's your life. That's that like is, what that you're doing. Is what you I'm do. going to go to Chick Fil A and get my chicken, but you're <laughs> you going know, to go I'm and get your outside first. Again, in the right? backyard. Yeah. In the right. backyard. Well, so. great stories, uh, obviously, and the experiences you've had here. Thank you for your contribution to Hillsdale Hospital. Look forward to having you again sometime on Rural Health Rising. Next time on Rural Health Rising, we'll have another great conversation with another great guest, so be sure to tune in. And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell others why they should listen too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising. And you can now find us on Twitter. I'm at Hillsdale CEO JJ. Rachel is at Rural Health Rach. And you can also follow the podcast at Rural Health Pod. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, and a proud member of the Health Podcast Network, hosted by J.J. Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. For more episodes, interviews, and more information, visit ruralhealthrising.com.